Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen, amen, amen. Church, you may have a seat. I don't know about you, but I'm extremely thankful how the Lord is providing through our worship team. Amen? It is so good. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go and open to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're continuing our our series, Jesus for All. Again, we're looking at encounters that Jesus had with people that were extremely unlikely. People that many people thought that he should not have encounters with, that he should be avoiding, and today is no different. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Layers of Lies. Layers of Lies. And when I say layers, it occurred to me this morning, words are funny like this. I'm thinking onion, right? Layers. Not like evil castle. You know what I'm saying? Not like throne of lies that somebody sits on in a castle. Maybe you do. That's your business. Layers of lies. I digress. And so John 4, Jesus has left Judea on his way to Galilee. And so we're going to pick up in verse 4 of John 4, which says this. He, being Jesus, had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is important. It is an interesting wording here. Jesus had to. I don't know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Jesus didn't have to do anything, right? He can do anything he wanted to. But some reason, it says he had to. And so I wonder, since this route to reach Galilee would go through Samaria, would be the shortest route versus going around, is that why he had to? No, I don't think so. Because normally what Jewish people would do is they would avoid Samaria, so they'd go all the way around to go to Galilee, anything they could do to avoid Samaritan people. See, there's a hate-filled, long history of tension between Jewish people and Samaritans. And so there's no way that people would intentionally go through Samaria, right, if you're a Jewish person. So I don't think so. But I think Jesus had to, because as we've seen through the series, hopefully, and as you see in the gospel, Jesus' priority was people, not a place, Right? People, not a place. Jesus says in Luke 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The lost being people. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Now, a little conjecture on my part. But I know the disciples, right? You see how the disciples' attitude and actions all through the Gospels are not quite what we think they would be, being so close to Jesus. So there's no doubt, I think, that these disciples would have taken issue with Jesus' decision to go through Samaria just because of the history of tension and how the Jewish people saw the Samaritan people. Which leads me just to, to ask a question. Maybe it's just me, but I'll ask anyway. Do you ever make perfect plans that don't quite pan out? Anybody there? Yeah? I'm not alone. That's so good. That's so nice. So what happens when your perfect plans, because really, I got some good ones. We can talk later. 
When they don't pan out, is that when you start getting frustrated, anxious, maybe stress, maybe even fear? Those are good moments because they should be check engine light moments for us. You know what I'm saying? Like when you check engine lights on a car, it means that something's wrong. You guys know that? You should probably get that looked at. Same way with us. There's things that happen spiritually that should be indicators that something is off. And those moments, I know for me, I've really asked the question, is Jesus really Lord over all of my life or just Lord over things I allow in my life? You know what I'm saying? Like even when my plans don't come out like I think they should because they're pretty awesome, do I still trust that God had better plans than me? Isaiah 55, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. For heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I wonder if we believe that. Do we trust his plans, not our own? And details matter. It's funny how we can come to Scripture and just kind of pass by some details. It's interesting. It gives us detail. The Bible says it was about noon when disciples had gone to grab some grub leaving Jesus at the well by himself. When this Samaritan woman came to, just to draw water. And it's interesting because noon is interesting. One, women would have come earlier in the day to draw water to do the labor to beat the heat. That's telling maybe about how her community viewed her and her standing. Which well, I believe, and many others, that why she came at the time she did, later in the day, because she's hoping no one would be here to avoid the criticizing, maybe condemning crowds that didn't approve of her lifestyle, which we'll talk about in a minute. But to this woman's surprise, on a few levels, she comes to the well expecting no one potentially to be there, and there's a man there, surprising. And he's a Jewish man, double surprising. And then he asked her for a drink out of her own container, which is completely unheard of. Like a Jewish rabbi would ever rather go thirsty and potentially die of thirst than drink out of the same unclean container of a Samaritan person. And here this Jewish man asked her for a drink. Which leads me to wonder about us. How many people are we evading encounters with throughout our daily life just because of maybe differences or even dogma? How many people are we invading what the disciples were learning and what we need to know is that followers of Jesus are sent as we go to be witnesses of Jesus, Acts 1. To be ambassadors for Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5. To be imitators of Jesus, Ephesians 5. And so when it comes to us being witnesses, ambassadors, and imitators, I wonder, how are we doing? Monday's coming, right? When you go into your workplace, when you go into your school, How's that going for you? You see, when we see Jesus, he set the standard what it was to follow him. It was what following Jesus was, to be like Jesus. Jesus was a barrier breaker, prejudice smasher, and a wall crasher. And I wonder, are we? Based on the Bible, shouldn't we be as well? And culturally, there's a lot of barriers, prejudices, Walls that either are prevalent or perceived with our own community. You're asking me which one, so I'm glad you asked, right? How about social class? How about skin color? How about gender? How about politics? 
How about religion? These are all barriers, walls that we have in our own community. I just wonder what we're doing about them. Are we just going along with the flow or are we working against them for the glory of God? Because the gospel really does unite. I believe it. The gospel is the difference maker when the Holy Spirit's at work. So what are we doing? Do we let these things divide? Are we trying to break through them for the good of people around us? And see, this encounter, Jesus breaks through at least three different barriers that was evident. One, she's a Samaritan. Okay, we established that. Two, she's a woman. And three, she's evidently an outcast within her own community. So with this one simple conversation, Jesus is breaking through all of these walls, barriers for God's glory. This is what leads this woman to ask, how could you ask for a drink from me or from someone like me? To which verse 10, Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, this, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from himself and his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this well, this water, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In fact, the water I give will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So a little background, because I know me are like, who's Jacob? It's a good question. Who's Jacob? What do you remember Father Abraham, who had many sons? Many sons did Father Abraham. Church joke. I love when half the audience doesn't laugh because they have no idea. It's so good. Abraham. God chose Abraham many years before this encounter to lead and to bring about a people for God, right? So God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, many people. And so father had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Okay? Tracking so far? It's going somewhere, I promise. Jacob's name means deceiver. Sorry if your name's Jacob. Just what it is. Okay? Ask your parents. Deceiver. And he ended up living up to his name being a deceiver. But then Jacob has this encounter with God in Genesis chapter 32 where he wrestles, struggles with God. And God changes his name to Israel. And so that's where we get the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose now name is Israel. We get the Israelites, nation of Israel. Makes sense? So Jacob was a pretty big deal in Jewish life. That's all I'm saying. That's a long way to say pastor speak. Oh, we get, he's a big deal. Okay. So the woman here is making a point through a question. You ever do one of those? Making a proclamation question? You're really not asking anything. You're really making a point. I do it all the time as a parent. As soon as I hear my boys saying, watch this. Yeah, I'd stick my head out and usually leads to, what were you thinking, right? I'm not really asking. Obviously, we're not thinking. And my wife, you know, as gracious as she is, she would never say this to her husband, but many times when I say, hold on, we're about to try something, right? Usually leads to my wife going, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? This woman essentially saying, so who do you think you are? That's what she's asking. You think you're greater than our father Jacob? Who do you think you are? And I love Jesus' reactions to people's objections all throughout the Gospels. He'll either, he never just answers the question, right? He'll tell a story. He'll ask a question. He'll give an illustration. I love it. It reminds me, like, if someone were to ask me, 
come up to me and just make an accusation, essentially something like, you know, you only believe in God because you're weak and need a crutch. This is a common objection, by the way. It'd be like me saying, you know what? So there was a man who had no arms and no legs. And he had to get from his futon to food line. And yet he had crutches. And he had all the strength that his body could generate. Yet he was still incapable. But seeing his helplessness, he actually called his friends to bring their car to take him from the futon to food line. So yes, you know, actually it's so much worse. It's that... God's not my crutch. He's the car. He's the driver. I'm completely incapable. So it's so much worse than what you say. It'd be something like that, right? That's how Jesus answers questions, but it'd be a lot better, obviously. So what she say? He said, this woman says, so you think you're better than Jacob, right? He says, you know what? Let's talk about water. Let's talk about water. Jesus begins peeling back the layers of the lies that she had been believing in her own life. Number one, this searching for to be satisfied with water. Because what happens? When you drink water and the water's gone, then what happens? You get thirsty again. You guys drink water? You get thirsty again. It just happens. The cycle repeats itself. And the point that Jesus is getting at, and he starts to point to, is a point that we need to remember. Essentially he's saying you're searching for satisfaction and pursuing passing, passing pleasures in your life. And just a, an awareness for us, and I think we know this, but one of the schemes and traps of our enemy, the devil, is distraction. Busyness. He keeps us busy, and that's all you're thinking about is the busyness of the day. I wonder, how many of us have gone through a day without even thinking about Jesus? Anyone? Good for y'all. This is so nice. I didn't know if anybody actually raised your hand. I know being honest is, has no room in church. We do that sometimes. I mean, this, if we're honest, the busyness of the day captures our attention. And then when something bad happens, that just draws us in further, doesn't it? Jesus says, in other words, this water will never fully satisfy, but there is a water that will. And this one responds, I can't tell if her her response is sincere or sarcastic. I tend to lean sarcasm. Maybe that's just me. I tend to lean sarcasm. She says in verse 15, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. I mean, yeah, I get it. And I wonder how many of us treat God this way. What can you do for me? What can you do for me? Like, I got these things, I got these things, and I, what can you do to make my life Easier. We can come, become so wrapped up in our f- desires physically that we become deprived spiritually. And this is the whole point. We lose focus. How do we go throughout the whole day without even thinking about Jesus? No wonder why we feel beat down at the end of the day or at the end of the week. Because we're relying on ourselves. We have the, the, the temporal have completely just brought us in and we've lost aspect of the eternal reality. I think that's what the woman's focus was. She says, give me this water so I can avoid constantly running to get more water. And give me this water so I can avoid constantly running from the criticizing crowds that are around me. And Jesus, I think, is trying to get her to see past the temporal to the eternal, breaking through 
her focus on the physical necessities to see her spiritual needs. So again, we see Jesus again peeling back another layer of lies that she had been believing. Shifts the conversation from water to wrong relationships. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place of worship is in Jerusalem. A couple things going on here. One, peeling back another layer of lies that she was believing. One, her satisfaction, searching for satisfaction in water. And obviously her life has been searching for satisfaction in men. And both of these layers of lies are being exposed, are exposing her searching for satisfaction in a lot of ways that we do. Possessions and people, right? That's what we do. We look to be satisfied for the next thing. Man, I remember, I was, my, my neighbors, just found out yesterday, one of my neighbors have the original Nintendo. I'm going to date myself a little bit. But I remember getting that first Nintendo, 87, 88, my wife and I were debating this the other day. And I remember, man, I was so satisfied with my Nintendo. It was just, the world was perfect. Every wrong was made right. It was just amazing for about a week, right? Isn't that what, what, how it goes? Satisfied for about a week. Well, here Jesus drops the metaphors and dives right into discussing her multiple men. And this is for some context. In this culture, our culture now, when you talk about divorce, and I want, I want to tread lightly because I know many of us have went through, wrestled with divorce and the hurt that comes from it. But our, our culture now, divorce is not only accepted, but I think many people, it's expected just because of the rates of divorce. In the first century, that was not the case. Not so much. It was not accepted or expected for the most part. Obviously, the Bible speaks to some exceptions because God knows us. He always provides a way. And so we know people are people. And situations happen. Relationships hurt. And things go wrong. The Bible speaks about, with divorce specifically, sexual infidelity and spiritual depravity. Just as, and if we want to talk more about divorce, we can, or, uh, divorce, we can do that. But no, it, it's a hurt topic. And there's so many things that go into why divorces happen, but the hurt that comes out of it. But what Jesus is doing here is exposing her sinful lifestyle that she was stuck in. And we don't know all the dynamics, but we know it was wrong. The Bible talks clearly about divorce because God has a high view of marriage. God's view of marriage is one man, one woman for one lifetime. Anything short of that is not God's standard for marriage. But then people creep into the mix, right? So hear me to say, if, you, if you've been through divorce, there's a lot of grace and truth. It does, your history doesn't shape you. Your history doesn't define you. It's not your identity. And so many times we can slip into the shame that we feel because of our sin God doesn't bring condemnation. He brings conviction, right? Regardless of whatever sin we're talking about. We talked about a couple weeks ago, you're not your sin. So we're getting to again today. Because we're seeing these people who have these lifestyles that would have been completely outcasted because of decisions that they made. But Jesus is going to them anyway 
Because he sees, I'm getting ahead of myself, he sees people for who they are and not the sin that they're in. That's so important. Which he starts peeling back a, a much subtler layer of lie that she's been believing. That you don't have to live in the shame that you feel you're, because of your sin that it's put you in. Jesus did not see this woman as her sin. And Christian, God doesn't see you as yours either. This is important. For the Christian, God doesn't see you as your sin. It doesn't define you. Jesus does. Your identity is rooted in Jesus. But at the same time, lying to yourself about your sin only adds to the layers of the lies that we're living in. And this is a crucially important. There is no hidden sin. Do you realize that? I mean, we do our best to try to hide things. And you can hide things pretty well from people around you, but there really is no hidden sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 tells us, For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. You can't hide anything from God. No matter how hard you try, you can't hide anything from God. Nor should you want to. By God revealing some sin issues in your life, it's actually God's grace in doing that. So you can be restored, refreshed, forgiven, and come back to the relationship that you were meant to have with him in the first place. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's faith that leads to confession and knowing that he does it. And I talk through this all the time with people. You confess your sins to the Lord when you're faced with them. If you sin against someone else, then you go to that person. But also, you have to forgive yourself. People wrestle with this all the time. Like, I can't forgive myself. If God's forgiven you, forgive yourself. Be patient with yourself. Be gracious to yourself because God's gracious and patient. I know I wish it was that easy, but we have to go back to God's truth. He will forgive. He will cleanse. And this woman, obviously trying to avoid the uncomfortable that she's placed herself in, right, or found herself in, tries to avoid the subject, transitioning from a tension-filled hot topic of the day regarding worship. I see you're a prophet. Let's talk about who's right in worship. It's funny. Something she's going to find out is something that we need to know. You cannot Jesus juke Jesus. Do you guys know that? You can't do it. Can't Jesus juke Jesus? Jesus. So, Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Real quick, pause, we're going to keep going, but real quick, this doesn't mean all Jews will be saved. It does not mean that. Faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. It does mean the Messiah, the Christ, will come through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, nation of Israel, the Messiah. Salvation will be from through the Jews. Verse 23, but an hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him in spirit, worship in spirit and in truth. And so real quick, many have the mindset of this woman. Like, we have to go to church, church at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sundays, and that's worship. Well, a couple things. Yes, maybe not 10 a.m. Yes, you need to 
be a part of a church for worship. That is by God's design, and it's a command from the Lord. You need to gather part of your local church that you're committed to to worship with other people in your local church to worship the Lord. That has to happen. That is biblical. But two, it's so much more bigger than that. Two, gathering with the local church is not the only way we worship. I mean, Romans 12.1 opens it wide up. And this is what I think we need to get out of the compartmentalizing category that worship is this and in my life. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This means this is your lifestyle. When you surrender to Jesus Lord, you surrender all of your life, and now you're living for his glory alone. Going back to do we trust him as Lord over all, or only what Lord that we want him to have access to in our life, what we allow. Worship is our lifestyle. Worship is definitely something we do together and something we do as we go. Worship. And this changed how we view work, how we view school, how we treat one another, how we lead our family. It changes everything when you view everything as your living sacrifice, worship. And it goes back, we see what pleases God. In worship, what pleases God? He says, true worshipers. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. Real quick, in Acts chapter 2, you had all the Jewish people standing there before Peter, and Peter saying, essentially, you read it, you killed Jesus. All of them didn't kill Jesus. He was making a point. You people are responsible. Blood on your hands. And they cry out, what do you want us to do? What shall we do? And in verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter replies, repent. That is both believe and repent. And be baptized. This is water baptism. Each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we worship in spirit? It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that comes through Christ alone when you repent and believe. Tied together. You can only worship God through a right relationship with Jesus, also known as being righteous. So it means right relationship. You're righteous because of Jesus, not because of your own righteousness. And Jesus drove this point home in John 14, 6. I am, he said, the way. Not a way. The way means only way. The truth and the life. And he says this. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that no one means no one. I don't care how good you think your life is. How many good things you did yesterday. No one comes to the Father except by grace alone, God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is true worship. And let's be clear, everyone worships someone or something. I don't care what you believe or don't believe. Everyone. Romans 1, 25 says, They, being those that reject Jesus, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator. Also, no, we worship stuff and ourselves. Because that's why we want so much stuff. Because we want to feed our own selves. So I think at this point, this woman had decided to duck out of this conversation, this discussion with Jesus. So in verse 25, she said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In other words, who knows, right? Who knows where we're going to worship? We'll find out one day. And Jesus says, you know what, why wait? Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. At this point, he says, point blank, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. I believe at this point, the woman had finally 
saw who Jesus was. The Lord removed her spiritual blindness, and she realized, wait a second, we haven't been talking about water, have we? This really isn't even about the men I've been with. It's actually not primarily even about my sin. It, it, it's you, my Savior. When you ex- truly experience Jesus, two things happen. This is not to be legalistic. Two things happen. You cannot help but to be transformed by Jesus when you truly experience Jesus, number one. And you can't wait to tell others about Jesus when you experience Jesus. At some level along the way, as you follow Jesus for so long, some people lose their passion for Jesus. I don't know how that happens. But meet a brand new believer, and they're telling everyone about Jesus. I mean, do you remember that? Some of you, that was yesterday. Some of you, that we won't, it's been a while. Do you remember that? When we love Jesus so much, we want to tell everybody about Jesus because he's changed everything about us. This week, I have a friend that's had significant baggage. I've been walking through him these past few weeks, really months, but specifically this past week intentionally in, in a very heavy way. I said, man, you just need to go spend some time and say, God, show yourself to me. Because he still had these doubts. And does he exist? And I just won't need proof. And I said, just go honest and cry out. Show yourself to me. And an incredible and amazing event happened to him that night. And he would describe it as the ground shook. He saw things in the trees, like just this amazing experience. He was by himself, and he experienced Jesus. And it changed his life. And you know what he did immediately after that? Because I know the time, because he texted me, then he did. He went to social media. And he told everyone, he, like, he was by himself. So anybody I can think of, I'm going to tell him what happened. So he got this wrong narrative. He had a video he was recording. Everybody could tell. He wanted them to know that Jesus just changed his life. Amen. What would that look like every day if we remember how Jesus changed our life? This woman was transformed and couldn't wait to tell others about it. Verse 28. It says the woman left her water jar, jar of water, went into town and told the people, come and see who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left town and made their way to him. So why did this woman come to the well? Do you remember? Why did you come to the well? To get water. Not a trick question. What did she leave at the well? The water container. Suddenly, the water didn't matter anymore. Stuff didn't matter. Jesus was her passion. So he, she ran into town. And this woman was not an influential woman. But at some level, she had some persuasive passion. Because in verse 39, it says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said she had testified. He told me everything I ever did. In verse 41, many more believed because of what he said as they were coming to him. Verse 42, they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the savior of the world. It's so crucial. The entire Samaritan revival that we see experienced was ignited through two crucial components. One, Jesus did not see this woman as her sin, but rather a woman, a woman helplessly stuck in the sin she's in. What if we started to see people like Jesus sees people? This is really the whole point of this series. We're taking six weeks for us to get, what if we actually started seeing people like Jesus sees people? What would that look like in our workplace, in our school, in our recreation? In John 8, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Jesus frees 
this woman and everyone who comes to him by faith from the bondage of sin. And you don't have to be helplessly stuck in it. Number two, this woman took the life-changing truth of Jesus and being led by the Spirit told others about Jesus. I asked this question a couple weeks ago. The people in your workplace, people in your school, people at whatever club that you go to, I'm not sure what we do, whatever you do, people around you, I guarantee there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus as Savior. So my question to us still is, how are they going to? How are they going to come to faith? By your good deeds? That's not what the Bible says. Romans 10 asks this question really as a statement. This is what we do here. Questions and statements. It says, how then can they call on him who have they, that they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? His response is, well, we pay this guy named Josh. He's a pastor, so he's going to go evangelize the whole West End. It's not what it says. It says, so faith comes from what is heard and what is heard through the message about Christ. What it's saying is that we are sent, we as being followers of Jesus, to preach so others can hear and believe. How are people in your workplace, schools, recreation, how they can come to faith? By you sharing the gospel and by God working his spirit. God's already at work in this place. We're just called to join him in the work he's already doing. This is the boldness that we have. We're not trying to persuade people or convince people, win the argument. We're sharing the life-giving truth that's in Jesus and sharing our testimony, how Jesus changed us. And then we expect God to do what he can do. We go, he draws. That's how this works out. So I just wonder, all this we talked about, what are we going to do about today? Listen, we're going to have a, a moment, we're going to respond. But I'm going to give you three potential responses that I want us to consider as we look at these layers of lives that we have been potentially believing, similar to this Samaritan woman. Number one, I, I need us to know that Jesus took the shame and your sin and placed them on him. Jesus took your shame and your sin and placed them on him. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins, from us. And think gospel, not global, right? Because obviously you go east and west long enough, it's going to come back around. You're like, oh, there's my sin still. It's not what it's talking about. I'm not saying the earth's flat either. We're not going there, right? So the gospel means forgiveness. Complete forgiveness, complete cleansing through Christ. Number two, you're not your sin, and you're not where you've been. You're not your sin, and you're not where you've been. We look at this woman, and she's been through some stuff. I know us, and many of you have been through some stuff. I've been through some stuff. Praise God, I'm not what I've done, and I'm not where I've been. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. New. We are new in Christ. We're not the person we used to be because of what Christ did in us when we believed in him, trusted in him as Lord over all of our life. And finally, three, and maybe most importantly, God can take your hurt and your history 
and turn it into an amazing story for his glory. God can take your hurt in your history and, take your, and make an amazing story for his glory. I wonder if we believe that. Man, I, I hear this question. If you could change one thing in your past, what would it be? And honestly, honestly, again, I think I can be honest. Honestly, not a thing. Have I messed up? Yes. Have I been through some stuff? Yes. Would I change it? No. Because God has taken that and shaped me in a way only to where I can live for his glory. I talked to someone this week. It's, it's amazing how he takes the least likely and does something crazy with them like me. 20 years ago, there's no way I would even consider being a pastor of a church. Nor would anybody around me think that would have been a good idea. Right? That would be awful. Only God. Am I perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. But God is working. You want to see the evidence of your salvation? Look at your either lengthy or short history walking with Jesus, and you'll see some growth looking more and more like Jesus. I don't know what God's doing in your life this morning, but I pray this word encourages you. When you start feeling shame and guilt and condemnation creep in, that's not whispers of your Savior if you're in Christ Jesus. That is whispers from the enemy. Therefore, now, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's the truth of Scripture. So we're going to do like we do every Sunday. I'm going to invite our worship team back up, and we're going to sing some more worship songs out of praise that he alone is worthy of. But I'm going to invite you to respond. And by invite, I mean challenge you. Like, do something about this right now, because I know when God's word is proclaimed, it does not return void, meaning he's working in you right now. I don't know what, what level, but you do. And so here's what's going to happen. They're going to come up, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask us to respond to him as we pray. And after we pray, we're going to sing. But I want you to respond to what God's doing. That may mean standing and singing and raising your hands as the Lord leads. It could mean that you stay sitting and praying and doing business with the Lord that he's showing you some areas of your life maybe you were blind to. We also have a prayer team over to the side that we would love to pray with you, pray for you, walk alongside you. We're a church that gets in the mess with you. We're not the church that says, God bless you, be on your way, we'll see you next week. Living as worship is what we do, and sometimes that's messy. You respond to what the Lord's leading and doing right now. And whatever that is, let's do it out of a heart of worship together. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for bringing us here. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truth that we see so clear in Scripture. Lord, that in Jesus, we have freedom. In Jesus, we have new life. In Jesus, seeing that you took the price for our sins so that we could live the true life that you've designed us to, that you've led us to. That is the true life experiencing you. So right now, Lord, I just ask that you lead us in this response. Maybe we've heard the whispers and lies of the enemy saying that we're unforgivable, unusable, replaceable. Remind us that because of you, and our surrendering our life to you, you have made us a new creation. We're not our sin. We're not where we've been. Because you took our sin and the debt that we were supposed to 
pay ourselves that we couldn't on your shoulders. And we have freedom because of your death, burial, and resurrection. When you said it is finished on the cross, it means sin has been paid in full. Our debt has been paid in full for everyone who would accept the free gift of God's grace in Christ Jesus of eternal life with you. That starts at the moment we believe. So right now, Lord, if there's anyone that does not believe, that has not transferred their trust from their heart to their heart, Lord, that right now that you just move your spirit in a real way and bring new life, Lord. Bring repentance and seeing the severity of our sin and bring in faith that knowing that in you we have true life that begins. Lord, move in this place right now. Bring our hearts a heart of worship, a heart of this thanksgiving because of your amazing love that while we were still sinners, you proved your love for us in dying in our place. Lord, remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the life that we have. Remind us of your goodness, of your grace. Remind us of who we are, children of the most high God because of Christ Jesus. Lord, lead us in just an explosion of worship as you would have it. We want to honor you. We want to praise you. We want to bring you glory because you alone deserve it. Let us live a lifestyle of worship. Start that right now in us, Father. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.